not knowing exactly who City Church is, where we're headed, what we're uh, doing, what we're trusting to get us where we are going. And so what we decided that we were going to do uh, for all of us, not just the people here in this room, but you online as well, is to actually just take five minutes at the beginning of every gathering and talk about some of the things that we are doing as a church. And so what I wanted to do was start this morning in the Word of God in order for that to illuminate and show us where we are headed as a church. And so I'm going to read out of Psalm 19 this morning, make a few observations, and then tell you something that we are doing to our vision statement as a church. This will be important for us as a body to know where we're headed. So this is Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. This will be familiar to most of us. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So what I want to announce this morning for our church uh, is that we are going to be simplifying our vision statement. Now, there's a couple of practical reasons why. Number one, uh, our, uh, our vision statement as a church has been uh, clarified for us over the last few years. We have Will Boston to thank for that. He stepped onto our elder team, helped us kind of pick a direction, uh, clarify a vision statement so that we could start heading in that direction. And the vision statement as it has been has been that we as a church are pursuing a revival of joyful worship that advances God's kingdom in every generation. Now, now, by necessity, vision statements are supposed to be pretty grand, pretty broad, pretty, uh, 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 pretty big, honestly. Uh, you're supposed to go after big things. God is a God of big things. And so what we thought as an elder team is, hey, let's, advance, uh, let's uh, aim at a revival in our church, first in our own hearts, and second, in our community, third, in the city around us. Let's actually aim at that kind of revival. Uh, we want to do that uh, by way of joyful worship. We had kind of uh, taken a look at the city church, and we had seen that there was maybe uh, something lacking in joy. I, I, I'll actually confess foremost that sometimes I lack joy, and especially in my worship at times, I could lack joy. And so what we wanted to do as a church was uh, pursue a revival of joyful worship uh, that advances God's kingdom in every generation. So advancing God's kingdom is a pretty big task. Uh, it's actually something that we don't even believe that we can do. We participate with God in the advancing of His kingdom, but we wanted to see it uh, reach far and wide. We wanted to see it go out into every generation. Now, here's me being honest about the practical, about the practical, is just to say that's a really big statement for a church that has just sent out three of our elders uh, in one way or another, we've, uh, we've had a, a deficit of leadership. Uh, we've also uh, shrunk as a church. We can be honest about that. We have a, a core group that is remaining here. Uh, I can tell you from having uh, really talked with a lot of people in our church, most of the people in our church I've had one-on-one -on -one conversations with over the last three or four weeks, and I can tell you we've got a really amazing core group of people that are wanting to see this vision statement continue to be played out here at City Church. But 
uh, it seems like maybe one of the things that it makes practical sense to do is to simplify for a season. So what we're going to do is we're going to take that amazing last half of our vision statement, the advancing of God's kingdom in every generation, and we're going to take that. We're not going to cut it off. We're not going to cleave it and throw it in the trash can. It's a really great vision. In fact, we want to continue to aim at that in larger ways, but what we're going to do is uh, take those last two pieces and put it on a shelf. Uh, We're going to uh, use the next six months to pursue a revival of joyful worship. Now, you'll notice uh, in the passage that I chose for this morning in the City 101 piece that there are some specific words that are used here. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, and what does it do? It revives the soul. So as a, uh, as a church, what we want to do is actually rely on the Word of God to actually create revival in our own soul, in the soul of our community, like our collective soul. We want uh, to actually see that uh, being something that is lived out by our entrusting of God's Word. But it, it says something a little bit more specific. It says that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. One of the reasons why we're going to simplify our vision statement during this season is because we need simple. We need to be wise about what it is that we can pursue as a body. So uh, we're going to simplify to pursue a revival of joyful worship because we think that it's wise. We think that it's simple during this time. Maybe you felt like your life has gotten pretty complicated recently, and you just need to focus in on a few things. That's what we're doing as a church right now. We're going to be pursuing a revival of joyful worship. That's the thing that we're going to aim at. So if you're wondering whether or not you as a member of City Church are doing what we're trying to do at uh, City Church, it's pretty easy. In my discipleship group, am I pursuing a revival of joyful worship? Here on Sundays, are we uh, pursuing a revival of joyful worship? When we go on walkie-talkies as, you know, a group of ladies, are we pursuing a revival of joyful worship? When we're uh, attending prayer nights and prayer gatherings, when we're singing songs, are we pursuing a revival of joyful worship? It should be a really simple and wise thing for us to simplify this so that we all know where we're headed and so that we can kind of evaluate in some ways uh, not just what we're doing as a church, but how effectively we're doing it. Does that make sense? It continues on uh, talking about the rules of the Lord uh, being righteous. They're more, desired, uh, more desirable than gold. But down there at the very bottom in verse 11, and this is something that I want for us to kind of inform the joy that we're looking for at City Church. It says this, Moreover, by them, that's by God's Word, by His rules, by His statutes, by His teachings, by His commandments, moreover, by them is your servant warned. Okay, now warned is a, uh, is a word that like maybe even has a slightly negative connotation to you. Uh, there's a heaviness to the word warn. Uh, we actually want to say that's okay. Uh, as we are pursuing joyful worship, it might be that that joy is a little weighty to us, that there are some things in the kingdom of God that need to be taken seriously, that we need to be sober about, that we need to be steadfast in. We talked about steadfastness last week. But what does it say right on the heels of that? Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. I want for us to remember that there are weightier parts of joy, but there is also reward for us. That the kingdom is not just the crucifixion of Christ, it's not just the justification of sins and his death, it is also the empty tomb, it's also uh, the resurrection. 
It is also the kingdom feast that we are looking forward to. So as a church, as we pursue joy, I want for you to know that not every song that we sing is going to be blasting loud and high tempo, but the words will be joyful. They will be sober. They will be steadfast. They will be deep. They will be rich. They will be the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord. The songs that we're going to sing are going to be filled with deep and rich truths and also as we pursue this as a body, I want for us to see it as okay to be loud, to be joyful, to sing uh, to this heavenly uh, Savior that we look forward to seeing one day, because it truly is his kingdom that we are after. It's his kingdom that we're living in, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that life today. So if you would, uh, on uh, hopefully that's clarifying at least a little bit for us, and we're going to continue dripping a few of these things out. Next week, we're going to be talking about our mission statement as a church. How are we going to pursue a revival of joyful worship? I'm going to tell you at least the mission statement, and then we'll use the subsequent weeks to talk specifically about how that impacts the ways that we gather and worship, the ways that we uh, go to uh, our discipleship groups and participate in those things. Hopefully this is helpful to you. Uh, what I want to do this morning is actually uh, start by just talking about uh, this passage. There is a label put on us. Now, humans are particularly fond of labeling not just ourselves, but also one another. Uh, we're, we're not just fond of it, we're pretty good at it. We were uh, almost born into it. Perhaps you even remember uh, grade school and the labeling that happened there. God bless you if your name ends in a Y, because it seems like every bad thing also rhymes with that. So if you're smelly, Kelly, or whatever else, there's a lot of things that rhymed with that. Or, or maybe you, there is like a body part that your name rhymes with. Uh, it just seems like grade school kids can't even help themselves but label one another in these ways. And I'm not sure that we get too much more sophisticated the older that we get. Uh, these labels, these badges are things that some of us carry around for a lifetime because they denote uh, not just negative things, but positive things about ourselves. Uh, we, Sawyer and I, uh, talk about our kids in these ways. We have one kid that is very relational, another one that is very creative, and another that's very funny. These are labels that we use to describe our kids uh, that I think more or less will probably follow them throughout their lives because these are really good things and they're, uh, they denote particular things about how God created them. But I'm also uh, just uh, acknowledging the fact that some of these labels are not so great, and some of them really do stick around for a long time. Uh, Sawyer and I recently moved back to our hometown. We moved out to Alito. Uh, both of us went to high school there, and I've started seeing, uh, actually less than I thought, but like started seeing some faces that I remember. And uh, the night before Thanksgiving, I was standing in line at the local grocery store just buying a loaf of bread, and I saw a face that I hadn't seen in years. Hadn't seen since my freshman year of high school. And it was a, uh, it was a, a woman who, uh, freshman year of high school, she was the uh, first person in our grade, in my grade, to, uh, have, uh, to have gotten pregnant. 
And I saw her face. I don't know if she recognized me. I had a mask on. She didn't uh, and everything, but I knew it precisely who she was. She looked almost exactly the same. And at that moment, it was like all of these like now 20-year-old labels like came up in my mind. Not, not unkind ones. In, in fact, at that time, uh, I remember uh, being in a class with her and everything and being very compassionate uh, towards her and, and, and finding out about it. And she uh, found out that she'd wanted to carry the baby to term. And I remember ha- having developed like this very brief, very awkward like interaction or relationship in this class. But um, she's lived 20 years of life since then. Her, her son or daughter, I, I never knew which one it was, uh, is now like out of the house and, and long gone. But the labels that I had, the things that characterized her life are still like firmly implanted. Some of these labels that we have, these things uh, that characterize us, I mean, they just follow us in the minds of other people or in our own minds for a long time. These labels don't have to be negative, though. In fact, uh, we work really hard to label ourselves sometimes with the right ones. I wonder if you've ever met anybody who uh, went to Harvard and graduated from Harvard. It's like a label. It's like you wear the shirt, and you're like, did you go to Harvard, or did you just buy that shirt offline? They've got the ring. Uh, They're going to tell you that they went to Harvard. Like, they're going to label themselves. They're going to make sure that you know that label, know that brand. I wonder if you've maybe uh, met anybody who had a really impressive career. Uh, oh, you're, you're an engineer with NASA? That's very impressive. That's a label that, uh, that we get to, like, look at and say, oh, that's, that's kind of part of who you are. It's easy for me to understand a little bit more. Maybe you have met someone who's famous, It's a famous person, and it's almost like the labels that we've given them seem to have like their own gravitas, their own like weight to them. You're in a room with like a famous person, and everybody's like, can you believe that there's this famous person in this room with us? It just has a weight, an incandescence. It's not just like a label. It's like a neon sign pointing at a person. Well, we all kind of do this. Everybody has their own labels. In fact, like I mentioned already, We work pretty hard to tell stories about ourselves, uh, to ourselves, about ourselves that shape other people's impressions of us. Are you a vegan? I bet people know that about you. You got the label. Are you an outdoorsman? Are you a mother? Are you a graduate? Are you a musician? Do you take pride in that? Are you a lawyer? Are you a marine? These are the kinds of things that we would actually like put on resumes. They're like resume virtues. They're labels that we put on ourselves. But not all of them are like resume virtues. Uh, David Brooks, one of my favorite authors that I I read a little bit less of now, but he, he says that they're not only resume labels, they're also eulogy labels. They're eulogy virtues. Maybe you're creative, you're kind, you're aspirational or diligent, you're attentive to detail, you're intelligent, maybe you're capable of deep love. These are the kinds of labels that people might put on you, and they're the things that people will talk about at your funeral. So there are good labels as well. In verse 26, if you'll look there with me, the disciples of Jesus get a label. They get a label. And I'm not, uh, we're going to spend some time this morning even unpacking how that label interacts with us today. It says this in verse 26, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. They were first called Christians. 
Now, I want for us to stop for a moment and, and ask ourselves, because we're so familiar with that phrase. We're familiar with that label that is put on people. These people were Christians, and we think, yeah, they were Christians. This was the first time that this was used. It, it makes me wonder, uh, what was it about these people that distinguished them so much that the people around them called them Christians? What made them worthy of that title? And maybe even more so for our purposes this morning, it makes me want to ask, uh, would we be called Christians? Not just in like a socioeconomic, this is like they're evangelical Christians, this is how they uh, vote or spend their money or think about things. Not, not, not like that. Are we Christians the way that these people were Christians? What we discover in Acts chapter 11 is that the gospel the gospel's arrival leads to gospel revival. The gospel's arrival at the church at Antioch leads to a gospel revival there. The gospel, we'll, we'll make this uh, connection here in a minute, but the gospel arrival in your heart, in your heart, leads to a gospel revival. The gospel's arrival in this church, think about this in terms of the vision statement that we're talking about, will lead to a gospel revival. What does the gospel's arrival in the church in Antioch teach us about gospel revival today? What is it that is unique about these Christians, these labeled Christians in the life that they were living that might have something to do with revival in us today? And what we find is three things. We're going to go through them fairly quickly today. There were three things that kind of marked the gospel revival in these Christians. One was evangelism. The second one was transformation. The third, discipleship. And these things have always kind of been present, and we're going to learn how they actually interact with our Christian life today. The first one, the first one, evangelism. Uh, we need a little bit of context to know how it is that evangelism even plays a part of this. If you read there at the top of these verses in verse 19, you find something that points all the way back to chapter 8 in Acts. So we, we've got kind of a time warp here where we've been going through the lives of Peter, we've been going through the life of Saul and his uh, persecution of Christians, but then now his entrance into uh, the kingdom of God and the uh, uh, apostolic ministry that he's at. But here... Here, in midway through chapter 11, it actually points us back and it starts another timeline with a man named Barnabas. What is it that happens there in verse 19? It says that uh, after the stoning of Stephen, there were all of these people that were dispersed. They went out to all of these different places. They went to places like Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch. They spoke to the Hellenists. What, what is it that's happening here? here here's what's happening. So there were a whole bunch of people that were in town in Jerusalem whenever the resurrected Jesus uh, is, well, when he's crucified, but then when he's raised from the grave. And then there's all of these people that were Jews that were visiting Jerusalem at that time that put their faith in Jesus and they just stick around Jerusalem. That's what had happened. And then at the stoning of Stephen, they realized that this persecution was going to start ramping up. Now, if you were a Jew that was living in Jerusalem, likely you lived in a house that your father lived in, that his father before him lived in. And so if you were a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus, you had a reason for being in Jerusalem. You could kind of uh, not hide out that you were a Christian, but it made sense that you were there. But the people that weren't from there, that had been hanging out after the stoning of Stephen, uh, didn't have that same kind of cover. 
It didn't make sense for them to stay there, and so they would have uniquely endured some persecution. So they started scattering back out to where they had come from. They didn't feel like they could stay here. The Christians started getting killed. They saw Stephen, this faithful man, get killed for believing the same things that they did. And what did they do? They headed back to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And as they did it, they spoke to the Hellenists. What's significant about that? It means that they were talking to Greek people. They were talking to pagans. These were, were not Jewish cities, the, uh, uh, Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch. They were uh, big cities with all kinds of idols, all kinds of temples, all kinds of sin filling these cities. In fact, Antioch, specifically the church that we're uh, talking about was in Antioch, was possibly the third largest city in the Roman Empire, would have been filled with all kinds of things, and yet these small clusters of Christians would have been very small, Initially, they would have bound together, and the work of the Holy Spirit would have done some pretty amazing and mighty things. What I want to do is zoom in and see how the Holy Spirit was, uh, what the Holy Spirit was doing at this little church in Antioch. Look with me. Verse 20. Some of them. Now, I, I want to put a note in that, okay? Just a pen in that. Some of them. Okay? We're going to come back to that here in just a second. But some of them were preaching the Lord Jesus. They were preaching the Lord Jesus. They were actually declaring the gospel. So the first thing that we can see that's a part of this church at Antioch is that they were evangelistic. They were telling people about Jesus. In fact, it's a really simple thing that they were doing. They were just preaching the Lord Jesus. It doesn't really give all that much more detail. They were just saying the name Jesus out loud. They were evangelizing. They were telling people about their faith. And this was just some of them. Their names are unrecorded. Perhaps the writer of Acts didn't even know who they were. He just knew which people group they were. But these people, the some of them, they couldn't keep quiet about what they believed about Jesus. And these new converts couldn't wait to tell somebody about Jesus. They were so willing to talk to people about Jesus that it's almost as if, it's almost as if the writer of Acts can't believe that they were talking to Hellenists too. So they weren't just keeping it in the synagogue. They weren't just keeping it to people like them. They were telling it, they were declaring the name of Jesus to these Hellenists, these Greeks, these people that weren't a part of God's kingdom that would have, uh, that would have been like kind of immediately off limits. We talked about this last week, immediately kind of off limits to any uh, Jewish man would have been like, I'm not going to talk to them. They don't even believe in God. They believe in all these other gods. These people couldn't keep it to themselves. They couldn't help but speak about the things that they'd seen and heard back in Jerusalem, and they were evangelizing. They were telling even the Hellenists. They didn't know any better. I wonder if you remember doing this, or if you've been proximal to somebody who's like new in their faith. They, they don't even know any better. They're just like telling everybody about Jesus. I love it. I remember uh, when God really got a grip on my heart, uh, the timeline between like eighth grade and like Uh, I'm sorry, when I was, yeah, in eighth grade to when I was about 16 years old, especially, um, there was just this period of my life where I was telling people about Jesus. I was just talking to people about it. It wasn't like, it wasn't something that I even knew that I was evangelizing. I'd grown up in the church, maybe had some vague concept, but I just couldn't help but talk about this thing that I believed in. That's what's happening here. I wonder if you're the same. I wonder if you remember back to a time when you were in young life where it was just easy to talk about Jesus. When you were uh, rock climbing with this group of people and camping with this group of people, it was just easy. 
when you were in college ministry and it's just like everybody that you came into contact with just needed to hear about this blessed Savior of yours and you just wanted to tell them. It was just some of them. They weren't hired hands. They weren't pastors. They weren't seasoned evangelists. It was just some Christians. Their names are lost, but the power of their ministry is represented here in this room. They're just faithful Christians. And I see mistakes, two mistakes in particular that we make in this area. I think that we've made it as a church, honestly. I think in the past we have made a mistake of saying something that is good and true. Like, how does that work out? You say something that's good and true. It's because of the effects of it. We have talked as a church about everything in life as mission. And that's absolutely true. Changing a diaper in the middle of the night is mission to your little child. Uh, Just being a virtuous person and not stealing things, living a little bit different life is evangelistic. It is missional. There are like a million things that you could put in that. How you order coffee, how you, uh, how you drive your car can be mission to the, church, uh, to the city that is around you. But I want to make an observation in that. If you say that everything is mission, like all things are mission, which they are, it's easy in the midst of that to remember to evangelize. It's easy to like lean into like the ambiguity of saying all things are mission and then nothing is mission because you're not ever like actually verbally declaring Jesus is Lord. I wonder if that I wonder if that strikes you in any kind of way this morning. I'm not trying to throw out the good news that like all of life is an opportunity for mission, but what I am trying to do is tell you a little bit about where we're going as a church, a little bit about where they were in Antioch and tell you evangelism is essential. Declaring with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Christ crucified, repentance and faith, these are the things that we have to be declaring to the world that we live in. The second thing that I I see is that evangelism is pretty uncomfortable, and so we lean into other giftings. That's not a bad thing. Not everyone in this uh, congregation is called as an evangelist or given uh, the gift of evangelism, but we are all called to evangelize, if that makes any sense. But what we do is we go, well, that's just not my gifting. My gifting is hospitality. My gift is faith. My gift is prayer. Great. But we forget the Great Commission, which is to go and make disciples of all nations. We forget, hey, it's actually our responsibility. So I'm going to offload that to the people that are gifted to do it. I'm going to offload it to a hired pastor, and that's going to be their job. And as a result, we have churches that are pretty anemic. We shuffle Christians in and out of different churches here in this city, but we don't see people actually coming into the church because we together have forgotten It's our responsibility to declare the gospel to the people around us. We must be evangelizing just like these, some of thems, were doing. Evangelism is uncomfortable, but we need to learn how to do it because it is part of our life as Christians. The gospel arrived at Antioch, and it was uh, rooted deeply in the hearts of these so-called Christians, and revival started by evangelism. So the question that arises in my mind this morning is, will we be the sum of them that other people in the future talk about? 
the nameless people in generations prior that were faithful to evangelize our children, to evangelize our co-workers, to evangelize the workers in this city, were uh, able to evangelize the homeless, were able to share the gospel and evangelize, literally take the good news to our best friends, to our family members, to ensure that they have the knowledge of the faith that we have. I wonder if we'll be those some of them. Are we willing to see it uh, not only as necessary, but see it as a deep privilege to speak about our Savior? Remember, this isn't like some really big, built-out like evangelism program. All that they were doing was simply preaching Jesus as Lord. That's it. It it was one sentence. It's really simple. I wonder if there are some things that we can do as a body to hold one another accountable in these efforts to evangelize, but then also to uh, benefit from the people that are in this room, the Daniel Winklers, the, the Adam Casburns that might be online, that are gifted in evangelism. I wonder if we could be taught by some of our pastors how to do that and do that effectively. It's just an idea. You might be seeing it come up in the mission statement. Will we be so in love with Jesus that we are willing to tell people, tell all people, even people that are unlike us, even some Hellenists, go and find some Hellenists in your life and then tell them about Jesus. I wonder if we're going to be those kinds of people. The first mark of revival, this gospel arriving in the hearts of the people at Antioch was to evangelize. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on to verse 21. It says, and the hand of the Lord was on them. The the hand of the Lord is just this uh, statement that's saying they were blessed in doing this, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The second thing that we see marking this revival in Antioch, and the second thing that we need to see for us as well, is transformation. Every Christian for all time has been transformed. Do you know this? You have been transformed. What am I talking about? Jesus uh, came telling us that we had to be born again. We're told that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation, that the old person has literally passed away, and behold, the new has come. You are actually a new thing in Jesus Christ, totally new. You've been transformed. You've been transformed. Romans tells us that we are transformed by the renewal of our minds. The Great Commission tells us that we aren't just supposed to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It also says that we're supposed to teach people to observe all that Christ has commanded us. So it's not just the transformation in our minds. It's actually, behaviorally, we are supposed to actually obey the things that Jesus told us to obey. We're completely new. We've been changed in our souls. We've been transformed. Christians cannot remain the same. They are a new thing. True conversion changes people. And and Barnabas knows this because he was sent to the church in verse 23, and it says that he came and saw the grace of God. How do you see the grace of God? You see it in the people. They've been transformed. The good news is is that Barnabas is literally coming to this group of people that they didn't know about two seconds before, and he sees the grace of God on them. He sees it in them. He sees the transformation in their lives, and he gives thanks to God. 
I think that the best example, we could, we could give several examples from this text, but actually comes at the end of chapter 11, where we're told that these believers in Antioch actually sent relief back to the brothers in Judah, Judea. But here's what's happening here, because it's easy to read past this. What happened was that Jews in Jerusalem see these Greek Christians in Antioch, and they go, hey, Barnabas, will you head over there and see what's going on? They literally take, we're going to talk about this in a second, they take one of the most gifted leaders, and they go, hey, could you go see what's going on? And he goes there, he spends a year there, and then those Christians see the famine. There's actually this prophet that says, hey, there's going to be a famine and then there's a famine, and they realize that there's a whole bunch of people that are in need, and they're brothers and sisters in Christ, and they may be Jews, and they may be far away, but we're going to actually support them. You, you, you don't even understand. I don't even understand how transformational the gospel must have been for them to give their limited resources and send it back to a group of people that they didn't even know, but they felt so in tune with, so in love with, because of the common bond of Christ. Christians are transformed. Here, the Greek converts are choosing to send relief to ethnic Jews. Their generosity is evidence of this transformation, this inward change in their hearts. So, looking back, I wonder what ways you've been transformed. I, I, I don't want for that question, by the way, to just like pass by you. I want you to think in this moment, what trajectory were you on before Christ? For some of us, by the grace of God, we grew up in Christian households, and we honestly don't know. I don't know what it would have been like to have been a part of like a, a family that didn't tell me about Jesus at an early age, that I didn't have some understanding of the, uh, the gospel, that I didn't have some understanding of what uh, Christian virtue looked like. I don't even know, but I see like parts of my heart that like this, I have like a severe like uh, pride. I have like a givenness towards addiction. Like I don't even watch like really popular shows, especially if there's several seasons in because I will ruin my life watching 24. Never seen an episode of Lost. It would be all over for me if I did that. I just got this like severely addictive personality. And so without Christ, without some of the things that naturally hemmed me in, I, there's just no telling what kind of life I would have led apart from Christ. But I wonder if you remember the trajectory that you were on. I, remember, uh, I wonder if you remember uh, what that person was like. Because for you, it's not just like an idea that you're a new creation. You really realize, like, you have been transformed. This kind of transformation is a mark of gospel revival, and it is the fruit. It's the fruit of it. We evangelize, and we are transformed by the gospel. But the final mark that we're going to talk about this morning is discipleship. Discipleship. Go, go with me to verse 22. It says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, now, I want you to recall this from, I think it was like chapter 4, that Barnabas comes into this picture and he was actually labeled. You remember this? We started off talking about labeling because uh, these people are being called Christians. He was labeled by the early church uh, apostles and the disciples. He was named Barnabas. Why? Because he was a son of encouragement. That's not a bad label. 
that's a pretty good label. I want to be known as the son of encouragement. I want to be the type of person that's labeled that way. What happens is, is that the early church uh, hears this report. It came to their ears at the church in Jerusalem. And what did they do? They sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas was one of their leaders. He was the son of encouragement. He gave sacrificially to this body. And here, several years later, they're sending him out to go and scope out what Jesus is doing, what the Holy Spirit is doing, what the Father has ordained in this church in Antioch. Now, he, he sent, he's sent to these disciples, but he also comes there and starts immediately leading them. He's discipling them. Discipleship was so important that the church at Jerusalem sent their best. And what happens when he gets there in verse 23, it says, he exhorted them, these are the Christians, he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And what happens? Many people, a great many people are actually added. Verse 25, it says, so Barnabas went uh, amidst all of this revival that was happening, all of these new Christians that were coming in, all of these Greek-speaking peoples that were coming into this family. What does he do? This is really important. Barnabas goes, holy cow, the Holy Spirit is really moving here. I actually need some extra hands on deck. And he leaves. He leaves and goes to Tarsus. And he finds Saul there. He says, Discipleship needs to happen, Saul. I need you back at Antioch. And Saul comes with him. It says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back. And then it says this in verse 26. It says, for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. They taught there. They were discipling there. Revival takes discipleship. But discipleship takes something else. And we're actually told a little bit about what discipleship looks like. Revival takes discipleship, and discipleship takes character. Where do we see that? Barnabas is a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Uh, Barnabas, we're, we're told about all of these other people, and they're called apostles, they're called disciples. Barnabas doesn't have a title. They're just sending a really faithful guy out there to disciple all of these people. He doesn't have a title. He's humble. Where do we see that he's humble? We see it in the fact that he actually goes out and gets Saul. If you were Barnabas, you'd been sent out, you find this new enclave of Greek people that you know and understand pretty good because Barnabas actually knew and understood the Greek and Roman culture pretty well. He could have been tempted to be a senior pastor. He could have been tempted to stay there and build like this like little enclave, build his own little kingdom, but he doesn't do that. He's humble, and he goes and gets Saul. And what we'll see in the chapters uh, moving forward after Advent, likely, is that we see that it's Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, but then there's a pivot. And these giftings in Saul, Paul, start taking over, and then all of a sudden it's Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, and then eventually Barnabas isn't really mentioned anymore. Why? Because he's a humble guy. He doesn't need the senior role. He doesn't need to be the lead pastor of these people. He's a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He's got no title. He's been sent to this Greek church, and he doesn't, like, squash it. He fosters it. He's humble. He goes and includes Saul. Revival takes discipleship. Discipleship takes character. 
Revival takes discipleship, and discipleship takes knowing the Word of God and teaching it like Paul and Barnabas did. Revival takes discipleship, and discipleship takes sacrifice. Barnabas and Saul, they spent a year here. This wasn't their home. And this was at a time where, like, home, pretty important thing. Right now, you can go and get on a plane this afternoon and be in London in the next, like, 12 hours, and then you can, you know, do something there and you can come home. It's not a big deal. This time, it was pretty dangerous to travel. It was a big deal to actually go into and live in another city that you didn't have family in or anything. It takes sacrifice. Discipleship takes sacrifice. City Church, I've said this uh, before, I want you to hear me now. Uh, at this fragile place that we are in as a church, we need leaders. And, and I've, I've had so many people go, hey, what do you mean? I want to lead. Like, I, I don't even need the title. I just want to help out. I want to help connect people. I want to put some of the gifts and skills that I have to good use. What can I do? I want to have those conversations. Carl and Andrew want to have those conversations. The truth is, we, we don't know all of the things that we need. Uh, but we do know more and more increasingly who God is giving to this church, who's going to be steadfast, who's going to be here, who's wanting to lead. This next season, we're going to be uh, slowly, patiently, wisely moving towards maybe having a few more elders come on. If you, if you, if you have ever felt like God is calling you into eldership, I want you to know what the first step is today. Just to act like one. It's just to shepherd people. It's just to be a discipler of people. It's not complicated. The, the, way, the thing that God uses in his kingdom is not the title. It's none of these things. I, I had, we had a guy at uh, City Church for years, really amazing, faithful guy. But he, he used to tell me something that I disagreed with, which is uh, he goes, man, City Church is such a hard place to figure out how and where to lead in. And what he meant is, is that the handholds, like the places, like the knowing where that next rung on the, you know, uh, jungle gym is, like it's kind of hard to discern. What I said was, I don't think so at all. I actually think that this is one of the best places because if you want to do something, if you want to love on people, if you want to lead a discipleship group, if you want to love on our kids in Kid City next week that we'll be back, Amen? Um, you can do it. You can do it. We want to make sure that it aligns with our vision, that it's loving and caring uh, of people, but I want you to know, I want you to hear me say this. If there's something that you want to do in this church, if there's a gift that you have that you want to lead out in and disciple other people in, I want to know about it. I can't promise you that you'll have the ability to exercise that immediately. There are ministries that like the largest of large churches with the biggest, you know, greatest amount of resources can't execute on. We can't execute on everything. We're going to be simple for a season, but I want you to know if you have a gift, I want you to use it. If you feel like you could serve in this church as a deacon, I want to know about it. Our elder team wants to know about it. We want to create an environment and a space where you can joyfully worship, not just in song, not just in teaching and preaching, not just in leading out in a discipleship group, but we want you to be able to lead out in joyful worship by the use of your gifts. That's what we want. So let us know about it. Let's have those conversations. Ball's in your court. We want to know about it. But I want to know this. For those of us that want to lead, that want to be disciples, we know that it takes sacrifice. That 
that it's going to take some sacrifice to be a leader, to be in and teach God's word, to be virtuous. So I have a question for you this morning. What are you willing to sacrifice? What cost might be too great to try to help other people grow in Jesus? Because there's a lot of things that keep us from it. Let's be honest. Sometimes it's just our phones. Like we're just on our phones so much, it's hard to like uh, do the next thing that's going to help us grow nearer in joyful worship in Jesus. There are a lot of things that hinder us. What is it that you're willing to sacrifice in order to love people and disciple them well? Are you growing in God's word? Are you willing to apply that in your discipleship group? in your conversations over lunch, in the way that you dis- uh, discipline and disciple your kids, in the way that you love your spouse. Gospel arrival leads to gospel revival. Now, you would be forgiven for getting to this place in this study and gone, I still don't totally understand what you mean by revival. It's such a big word. It's a big concept. Does the Gospels arriving at a place really mean that there is gospel revival? And if so, what does it look like? Well, we just talked about three things. It looks like evangelism. It looks like discipleship. You know, it looks like transformation in your life. That revival has to be happening in here. It has to be happening in your heart before it's going to happen through you in any other place. So if you're wondering, hey, what is it that I can do in order uh, for me to be uh, participating in this revival of joyful worship? I want you to know that it's by being transformed yourself, by evangelizing yourself, by discipleship yourself. But revival is such a big concept. It's a matter of death and life. And I say it in that order because I think sometimes we hear uh, it's a matter of life and death, uh, and we just let it pass by us. But revival is such a big concept. We've got to think about it in terms of death and life. I'm going to read uh, here from Romans uh, chapter 5, verses 12 through 17. And the, the, the piece that I want for us is in verse 17. So pay attention. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and then it spread, that sin spread so that death spread to all men because of sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law, but was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned. That's where we're getting this order from. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So I want to stop there. Do you get what's happening here? Do you get what Romans is saying? It's saying, hey, listen, death and sin came into this world through one man, and his name was Adam. Okay, that's all that those first verses were talking about. That's where sin comes from. And it doesn't matter if you sinned like Adam did, transgression is in you too. That's what Romans chapter 5 is trying to get at. Death reigned during this time. For if many died through the one man's trespasses, much more, much more have the grace of God and the free gifts by the graces of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So do you get the second half of that? Sin came into this world by one man, Adam, and then there's another man named Jesus who brings in righteousness. 
He brings in an abundance, an abounded grace for many people by God's grace and by a free gift in Jesus. And that free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. It's nothing like Adam. For the judgment following one's trespasses brought condemnation, but the free gift following the many trespasses brought justification. That is to say that through this other man, Jesus, we can be justified in front of God. For if, because of the one man's trespasses, death reigned through that one man, much more, much more, Christians, much more, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus. Revival is a matter of death and life. Death came to us all through one man, Adam, and now we are getting an abundance of God's grace through one man, Jesus, because he justified us on the cross. He died for our sins, but it doesn't stop there. It says much more that those who have received an abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness will not reign in death anymore, okay? For all of us who in 2020 feel like death is reigning, not for the Christian. Not for the Christian. Like, is there any more joyful news that we can, like, take some time and actually, like, dwell in and trust in that we might reign in life? We're going to reign in life. We are going to reign in life, Christian. You can reign in life because of Jesus Christ. Is there anything more like non-2020 than that? I mean, really? You don't have to reign in death anymore. You can reign in life through Jesus. Does anyone, does anyone want anything else other than to reign in life, to win, to rule, to live, to truly live in abundance. And all of this comes through a paradox. My son Jackson asked uh, Sawyer and I at lunch yesterday, he goes, what's a paradox? I've heard this word. What is it? I want to know. I need to know what this word means. And my wife gave him this really simple example. Romans 5 has another one for us today. If you want to live, Jesus had to die. To end that reigning of death and enter into the reigning of life, Jesus had to die. For you to live, Jesus had to die. For you to live, your old Adam must die. Antioch was the first place that these people were called Jesus people. They were called Christians. That's all they were to those people. They were like, these people are weird. They're evangelizing. They're being transformed. They're being generous. They're uh, taking the lead in, in actually discipling people. These people are strange. Let's call them Christians because that's who they say they're following. These Jesus people. These Jesus people are resurrected as new creations in Christ to live a life eternal. The gospel arrives in our hearts and accomplishes the gospel revival of our souls. So how do you know? How can you tell? How can you see these things? How can you, uh, how can you usher in these things at City Church? 
as we pursue this revival of joyful worship. How can you do that? Acts chapter 11 tells us. Look for the fruit of evangelism. How do you know that you're reigning in life? You're living in such abundance that you have to share that abundance with other people through evangelism. How can you tell that you're a Christian? Are you being transformed? From one degree of glory to the next, are you being transformed? How can I tell that uh, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ? By being disciplined to disciple others. I want to end in reading this from Second uh, Peter uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 3 through 11. I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to take communion together. Uh, so listen to this. His divine power. If you're wondering, where, where can I get the power for all of this reigning in life? <laughs> Here it is. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. That's what he's granted to us, by the way, is his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if, the, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray with me. God and Father, you have divinely granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You've given it to us. You've allowed a way for us in Jesus Christ to no longer be Adam, to no longer be filled with sin, to no longer be under your divine judgment. You've provided a way for us to be justified, justified through Jesus Christ, our Savior. But you, you haven't just left us to be joyful that we will not face condemnation. You have raised your son Jesus to give us life and life abundantly in his resurrection. And so, Lord, I pray that you would allow for this church, city church, to be a place that is revived in our joyful worship. Would you accomplish that, Father? As only you can. Lord, we cannot manipulate joy. We can't manufacture it in ourselves. Lord, you and you alone must bring us to a point of joy. Lord, at the realization that all things have been granted to us that pertain to life and godliness, you and you, away, you alone have provided a way for us in the midst of these things. And so we thank you and ask you that you would increase the rich joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can reign in life and life eternal. We can be co-conquerors, co-heirs, co-rulers with Jesus Christ. We can reign not just in life on this earth, but in eternal life forever, and that's because of what you have done, you and you alone. 
So Lord, as we uh, take communion this morning, Lord, we ask you that you would increase our faith, increase our joy, increase the virtue that uh, is talked about there in Peter and the knowledge that is talked about there in Peter. Um, Lord, your divine goodness, your fingerprints are all over us. Lord, we ask you that you would continue to accomplish the good work that you have started in us because of Christ Jesus. Would you glorify him? Would you allow us to glorify him and enjoy him forever? And of this we pray in his name. Amen.